This is How on Earth, KGNU's Science Show. I'm Jill Shong. And I'm Beth Bennett. Today is Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. Are you starting the party already? I sure am. Today we celebrate How on Earth's 30th birthday. 30 years ago, KGNU debuted its science show. 30 years ago and four days. The show launched on January 14th, 1992. Happy birthday to How on Earth. And coming up as a special birthday treat, we have How on Earth's original co-hosts with us, Dave Atkins and Jeff Ory. Stay tuned. Oh boy. Yes, we are going back to 1992 and I've gone all in. Way to celebrate the 30th anniversary of How on Earth, KGNU's volunteer-powered science show. Hold on, I've got some more 1992 for you. I am setting the stage. Okay, well, on those 1992 notes, welcome to the show, Dave Atkins and Jeff Ory. It's great to have you here, and thank you for coming back to celebrate with us. Thank you, Beth. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's unpack the show's origin story. What was the original impetus to create a science show for KGNU? Well, I was actually, this is Jeff, I was uh, volunteering at KGNU and working on a new show for Latin America. Both Dave and I were in graduate school together at CU's physics department. Can't honestly remember who came up with the idea, but we were mulling around the idea of a science show and Sam Fuqua, the um, public affairs director at the time, I think had said he, he was requested by Marty Durlin, the station manager at the time, to focus more programming on science, just given all of the science that goes on in the area. And so uh, Sam found me, found us, and uh, we started talking about putting together a show. You're both physics graduate students. Fortunately, we've graduated 30 years ago. <laughs> at the time, we were. <laughs> and so, if I can ask, how on earth did you come up with the show's name? Uh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Dave. Well, what, from what I recall, we came up with some names, and then we had an invitation on the first show to, to come up with a variety of names, and Sam was collecting names on a, on a whiteboard. And I sort of remember coming up with the with the how on earth as a, as an idea, and it somehow got picked. Um, so and it's been memorialized for thirty years. So that's my recollection, anyway. Jeff, anything different? Uh, no, that I just I do remember a long list. I don't know if it was a whiteboard. I mean, thirty years ago, did they have? Oh, maybe not. I tend to remember a, a long list of paper that they had right outside the studio of names that had come in and. Can't remember the, the, I'm sure, democratic process for choosing the name, but that's the one that stuck. Well, it's a great name, and we have some excerpts from the from your original 1992 show that we're going to play. Um, but we're going to mix it up a little with the topics that you covered in 1992 and some updates from 2022. Chinook winds and fires. Dave, you did an original piece on the Chinook winds 30 years ago. 
a subject more pertinent now than ever, given the devastating Marshall Fire we had only a few weeks ago. Let's have a listen to your original recording. Chinooks are warm, dry winds that blow down from the mountains into places like Boulder. The temperature of the winds can be up to 50 degrees Fahrenheit above the surrounding air temperature and can reach speeds of 100 miles per hour or higher. The mystery is how a warm wind could come down from a cold mountain. After all, warm air should rise. As the winds descend from the mountains, they enter an area of higher atmospheric pressure near the ground. Consequently, the air in these winds is compressed while giving up very little heat to the surrounding atmosphere. This phenomenon is called adiabatic compression, and it results in the warming of the wind as it descends from the mountain. Pumping up a bicycle tire also involves adiabatic compression. As the pump compresses the air in the cylinder, the internal energy or temperature of the air increases. Very little heat is given off to the surrounding atmosphere and hence the process is called adiabatic. You can feel how much warmer the air in the cylinder is since the pump valve gets hot. So now we know why Chinooks are warm, but why are they so dry? The prevailing winds in the United States are from the west. As the winds are forced upward by the mountains, they enter an area of low atmospheric pressure. The air then adiabatically cools. Since cool air cannot hold as much moisture as warm air, precipitation occurs. Consequently, the western slope of the mountains receives the majority of the precipitation, leaving dry air to descend the east slope of the mountains and form a Chinook. So next time the west wind howls, rejoice, as it could make Boulder as warm as Bermuda. So here we are, 30 years later, a few weeks out from the Marshall Fire, Colorado's most destructive ever, in which Chinook winds played a major role in burning over nine square miles and over a thousand homes in Louisville and Superior. Yeah, here the winds uh, were quite sustained was for several hours with gusts between 100 and 100, 115 miles an hour, which was really extraordinary. Yeah, and then they were also combined with the very dry summer and fall this past year, right? You noted the temperatures between June and December were the warmest on record after a wet spring and that helped to grow the grasses. Yeah, and without, with the lack of snow to really tamp down the grasses, then it, the, the whole front range became a tinderbox. Um, with the original fire uh, starting in the Marshall area, um, and uh, Marshall Mesa then acted as a wind funnel uh, all the way out to Superior and then to Louisville. So I want to ask you guys, how does the Marshall fire uh, compare with other Colorado fires in the past where Chinook winds played such an important role? Well, there are a couple, um, and they go back um, actually kind of around the, the origin of, of, of how on Earth show. Um, the old stage fire was in November of 1990, and it burned about 3,000 acres, which is about half the size of the Marshall Fire, but only 15 buildings, I think fewer, fewer uh, uh, less densely populated area. In that case, the warm Chinook winds were around 80 miles an hour, a little bit lower. Uh, the fire was started by a man who lived on Old Stage Road who threw a burning mattress out his front door. Yes, and then we got to mention the second Old Stage fire that was in January of 2009. It also burned about 3,000 acres while being fueled by, at that point, 60-mile-an-hour winds. Several buildings were destroyed then, and many others were threatened. That one started by power lines that were blown down by the winds. Uh, what, what role does, did the weather play in the Marshall Fire versus climate change? Yeah, uh, well, 
Chinook, Chinook winds are part of our winter weather system, but climate change really has made our summers and falls warmer and drier. This year, the Front Range experienced the longest period without any snow for 223 days, since that's the longest since records have been kept. And many days were in the 60s and 70s in the late fall and early winter um, with uh, overnight lows above freezing. But how does climate change affect the Chinook winds themselves? You know, we hear about hurricanes and how they are affected. They're more powerful because of climate change. But are the Chinook winds expected to be stronger or more sustained with climate change? Well, I don't think we know the effect of climate change on Chinook winds yet. Um, That said, the winds themselves were quite extreme with hours of gusts over 100, 100 miles per hour. Um, as well as, you know, combined with the intense weather on the West Coast, which, which uh, has been, uh, some people have linked to climate change. So could be a link, but I think the jury's still out. And, and critically with climate change, our, our drought season now extends into the winter season, which, which typically was a safe season to have these strong Chinook winds that we get. Um, so I think the, the extension of, of uh, the dry season of warmer temperatures extends the length of the fire season into that Chinook season, which is the, the critical factor. And speaking of climate change, since this is the 30th anniversary show, what are the atmospheric CO2 levels now as compared to 92 when the show began? So I did look this up and in 1992, our atmospheric CO2 levels were approximately 360 parts per million. Uh, last year, uh, the atmospheric CO2 levels were around 415 and they exceeded 417 parts per million several times, which they've never, never done before. And if you compare those numbers, 360 and 417, keep in mind that the pre-industrial levels of CO2 uh, were approximately 278 parts per million. Well, that's a bit troubling. So now let's tune into the news going on outside of planet Earth. Okay, well, then it's time for some astronomy. Also helping us to celebrate the show is Joel Parker, Hellener's veteran executive producer, astronomer, and longtime contributor. The first KGNU Science Show 30 years ago had a number of short headlines, and several were about astronomy. So how have those news topics changed since 1992? Here is the first one about the discovery of planets around other stars, far away from our own solar system. The long search for planets beyond our solar system may finally have succeeded. Everyone thinks this is the real thing, says University of California astronomer Dr. Frank Drake. After over 18 months of observations, Dr. Alexander Woltzon and Dr. Dale Frail report finding three Earth-sized planets, orbiting a neutron star 1,300 light-years from Earth. The star, a pulsar, spins on its axis 162 times a second. The existence of the planets was inferred from changes in the star's rotation rate. The finding is important because it advances the understanding of planet formation, and it's a step toward finding life in space. That discovery was announced in a paper in the January 9, 1992 issue of the journal Nature. So what has happened since that first confirmed discovery of an exoplanet, a planet beyond our solar system? As the headline indicated, it was a somewhat unusual planet because it orbited around a pulsar neutron star. Although that was the first discovery of an exoplanet, 
It took three more years until the discovery of an exoplanet around a normal sun-like star, a discovery that led to a Nobel Prize in 2019. Those initial discoveries led to a flood of finding planets around other stars. So as of today, 30 years later, astronomers have discovered nearly 5,000 confirmed exoplanets and more than 2,600 tentative detections. Exoplanets are difficult to detect because they typically are lost in the glare of the star they orbit. So although some exoplanets have been discovered by direct imaging, the large majority have been detected using the transit method, where a planet passes in front of a star and blocks a tiny fraction of that star's light. Those dips in the star's brightness can be measured by sensitive telescopes and can be used to determine the size of the planet. The next most common way to detect extrasolar planets is with the radial velocity method. A planet's gravity slightly tugs on the parent star, making that star wobble back and forth. These are incredibly small movements, but telescopes can see the star's spectrum move back and forth. The frequency of the starlight changes from the Doppler effect, like the change in sound one hears when a vehicle with a siren drives past you. The radial velocity measurements can be used to determine the mass of the exoplanet. In addition to making observations from ground-based observatories, there are over a dozen space missions, past, present, and future, dedicated to find extrasolar planets. The most successful to date has been the Kepler spacecraft, which used the transit method to discover thousands of exoplanets during its mission from 2009 to 2018. Currently, the TESS mission, which was launched in 2018, has been observing about 200,000 stars to detect transits of exoplanets. When we look back 30 years from now, it is likely that we will not only have found thousands more exoplanets, but will also have observations to characterize their atmospheres. And perhaps some of those exoplanet atmospheres will show signatures of life. This next headline from the 1992 original show is about Halley's Comet, which was outbound in the distant reaches of the solar system, having made its appearance six years earlier. Comet Halley, normally dim and quiescent as it recedes from the sun, suddenly spotted a new shroud of dust and underwent a major jump in luminosity. It may be its way of saying goodbye. This outburst was a release of a large cloud of dust, and some still unknown mechanism created the outburst. One possibility was that it was hit by a small object, or maybe trapped gases from ices that had evaporated earlier finally broke through the surface. Halley's Comet will be at its farthest point from the Sun in December 2023, and will be visible again in 2061. So, what happened in comet science since 1992? We have had many other missions to explore comets. In 2004, the Stardust spacecraft flew through the tail of a comet and captured samples of comet dust to bring back to the Earth for study. 
In 2005, the Deep Impact mission crashed a probe into a comet to study its interior. And in 2014 to 2016, the Rosetta mission was the first spacecraft to orbit a comet and to land a small partner spacecraft on the surface. Astronomers made many new discoveries about comets from those missions, as well as from ground-based and other space-based observatories, and will continue to analyze those data for years to come. Finally, the original 1992 science show had a headline about the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched in 1990 and still had some problems with poor quality images in 1992. With respect to Hubble, that problem-plagued telescope, for failing gyroscopes, unwanted vibrations, a faulty spectrograph, with some of the problems. Nonetheless, Hubble captured the sharpest images of Mars ever taken, as well as a photo depicting the clouds in Jupiter's turbulent atmosphere. To quote Shakespeare, Hubble, bubble, toil and trouble. The first servicing mission in 1993 corrected Hubble's vision to bring it to the high quality it was expected to have, as well as replacing those problematic gyroscopes and installing new instruments. There have been a total of five servicing missions to Hubble involving more than 30 astronauts to fix problems and improve capabilities. I have been lucky enough to have used the Hubble Space Telescope on over 25 projects during the past 30 years. The productivity of Hubble has been remarkable. Thousands of astronomers from dozens of countries have used Hubble to make about one and a half million observations of more than 43,000 objects to produce over 16,000 peer-reviewed papers. However, the cost of maintaining Hubble is hundreds of times more expensive than a ground-based observatory. There are still many types of observations that can be done better or only from the ground, and some that can be done only with Hubble. Hubble has contributed to studies about the expansion of the universe and dark energy, work that led to the Nobel Prize in physics, and helped pin down the age of the universe. It found moons around Pluto and observed planets around other stars, including determining the composition of the atmosphere of an exoplanet for the first time. All data from Hubble are publicly available online from the archives at the Space Telescope Science Institute. So, what is the future for Hubble? With the retirement of the space shuttle, there are no planned servicing missions, but there could be other ways in the future if Hubble lasts long enough. Astronomers will use Hubble as long as it is operated and instruments are working, but eventually, it will be over. Without an additional boost, Hubble's orbit is stable until the 2030s, at which point the telescope would re-enter and burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. The James Webb Space Telescope, which was successfully launched last month, will become the premier space telescope, although some capability of Hubble, such as observing in the ultraviolet, can't be replicated by the James Webb Space Telescope. That was Joel Parker updating us on astronomy topics that have been continuing How on Earth features. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the 30th anniversary special of How on Earth, KGNU's Science Show. I'm Jill Shong. 
Next, we have a look back at the news on blood pressure. The original headline 30 years ago about blood pressure reported that excess salt in otherwise healthy individuals did not affect blood pressure as much as we thought. Let's have a listen. A growing number of researchers now believe that for many of those with hypertension, restricting salt has little or no effect. Recent studies suggest that for some people it is not too much salt, but too little calcium that sets the stage for hypertension. Researchers say people have been interested in the salt question for 50 years and there's still no compelling evidence one way or another. There's a problem when research focuses on sodium without looking at other ions in the diet, like calcium and potassium. Researcher Dr. Thomas Ferris said, quote, There is no evidence that salt can cause hypertension in people with normal blood pressure. Taking salt out of baby food is just silly, and it bugs me that I sometimes can't get salted pretzels because of this irrational fear. Although still controversial, this calcium connection has already led some specialists to advise patients that they may eat pretzels, at least in moderation, as long as they also drink their milk. So we've learned a lot more about hypertension in these intervening years, a subject, Beth, that you covered in your recent book, Defy Aging, A Beginner's Guide to the New Science of Longer Life and Better Health. Yeah, I got to laugh at the show headlines from 30 years ago because the current guidelines have completely flipped those old news, and that's typical for science. Things change, and as we get new information, we change recommendations. So salt, or specifically the sodium in table salt, has been shown to increase blood pressure, especially in people who have a genetic predisposition. We've identified a few of those genes, but there are a lot more that are unknown. But before we jump into talking about causes of high blood pressure, aka hypertension, let's define it. Clinically, so that is in your doctor's office where it's most often measured, that means two numbers, typically in the ballpark of 140 and 90. So what exactly are those numbers? The first and the higher of the two is the pressure measured in your artery when the left ventricle of the heart contracts. This is the part of the heart that actually pumps the blood out into the body. The second lower number is the resting pressure after the ventricle has relaxed. Now, to understand the idea of pressure in our arteries, it's useful to make an analogy to water running through a hose. When you connect your hose to the outside valve and turn it on, you expect the water coming out of the end to be proportional to how far you've opened up the valve. But if there's a kink or constriction in the hose, water will build up behind it and the pressure will build up while the output decreases. Now, intuitively, this makes sense. And if arteries get constricted, say by atherosclerosis, which is hardening of the arteries, due to gunk that constricts the artery, the pressure will build. Okay, so that hose analogy makes sense. But how could sodium increase blood pressure? Short answer, there are a lot of mechanisms, but the easiest to understand is probably due to the increased number of molecules, namely sodium, floating around in your blood. When there's more of anything in the blood where concentration is tightly regulated, more water enters to balance things out. More water means more pressure. And with that increased pressure, the artery walls start to take a beating. And guess what? They respond. They're very dynamic entities, and they're going to build up some padding because they don't like that beating. So that's going to narrow the artery, further increasing the pressure, and we get into a vicious cycle. Now you might be wondering, if sodium causes this whole domino chain to fall over, why don't calcium and magnesium do the same thing? 
Well, two reasons. First, we eat a lot more sodium than those other minerals. And second, calcium and magnesium are pulled out of the blood and stored in tissues like bone and muscle where they can't have the same effect as they do in the blood vessels. So bottom line, we've learned a lot about blood pressure in the past 30 years, but there is a way to go. Just a few examples of unanswered questions are the roles of caffeine, vitamin D, and insulin. Tune in for our next decade anniversary and we'll revisit it again. Thank you, Beth. But it does sort of sound like I need to lay off the pretzels for now. Ah, you have to go with the low salt variety, Jill. (laughs) No, those aren't as fun. Happy Birthday is performed by Hiroshi Nakamura, and prior to that, Miranda Wong and Jacob Collar. Thank you for celebrating with us and for listening to How on Earth for 30 years. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's 30th anniversary show was produced by Jill Song. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett, Joel Parker, Dave Atkins, and myself. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by C C Music Factory and Nirvana. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast through iTunes. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Dave Atkins. And I'm Jeff Orley.